Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're here to talk about the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, and in particular, the first five chapters of book one of the Institutes. Now, I want to hand this over to Ian Clary, because he wants to open us up by kind of reading, I think, I think the opening paragraph or so of the Institutes of Christian Religion. So, is that right? Can you do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say that this opening section of the Institutes is really worth the price of the book, right? It's it's become something of a Christian classic in and of itself, you know, within a Christian classic. And so I thought, oh, what better better approach to this whole kind of topic of knowing God, knowing ourselves, than to just read what Calvin has to say. Um, so I'm going to start here um, right in the very beginning, chapter one of book one, section one. Uh, Calvin says, our wisdom, if it is to be thought genuine, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. As these are closely connected, it is not easy to decide which comes first and gives rise to the other. To begin with, no one can assess himself without turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves, because it is quite obvious that the gifts we possess cannot possibly spring from ourselves, and our very being is sustained by God alone. Further, the blessings which constantly spill over from heaven are like streams leading us to the fountain. Here again, the endless good which God exists in becomes more obvious beside our poverty. Most of all, the sad ruin into which man's first rebellion plunged us compels us to turn our eyes upward. Not only that in our desperate need we may ask for what we want, but also that in fear we may learn humility. Because man is so full of misery and ever since the fall has exhibited such a catalog of blatant sin Everyone who is stung by the awareness of his own unhappiness gains at least some knowledge of God. So our feelings of ignorance, vanity, need, weakness, and general depravity remind us that in the Lord and no one else can be found the true light of wisdom, solid virtue, and overflowing goodness. Our evil ways make us think of all the good things of God. We can never really seek him in earnest until we begin to despair of ourselves. Don't we all rely on our own strength when we're not aware of our own of our real nature and are quite content with our own gifts, ignoring our misery. When we do come to ourselves, we are spurred on to seek God and are led by his hand to find him. Mm-hmm. And I just, man, there's so much you could just say. We could, we could spend, you know, easily a whole podcast just on that opening section of, of the institutes. What I find remarkable about it is how deeply psychological Calvin is in the sense that you know this, this is this is really a study of human nature in, in a way that um, that he has this profound ability to look into the human soul and just see really the way we think and the way we act in light of our knowledge of God and uh, we become so contented with ourselves the gifts that God gives us that we kind of feel like we don't need Him and what he's really saying here is that we we really just need to kind of be constantly going back to who God is in order to really just finally understand and value ourselves. And all that can only happen, as he says right there, as we're being led by God's hand to do so. So I, I just think it's such an awesome, awesome opening section. Well, I think there's, a, yeah, you're right. There's a ton of things we could talk about here. I, I had some ideas and we can kind of work to the end, but maybe, and you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, talk about what do you think it means to be led to God? I mean, God leads us to him. In what way does Calvin see that happening? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, as you, as you see, as you kind of, we continue to read in the op- these opening five, you know, chapters of, of the institutes. Um, you know, Calvin's going to lay out certain problems that humans have, right? Um, the, the kind of, 
we sort of think that the fundamental problem that we have now is post fall, um, that, that we're sinful, uh, but humans existed, you know, with, with serious problems when it came to the knowledge of God, even before the fall. Um, I can say this, I hope I'm saying this carefully in the sense that, you know, as Calvin's going to say, God's own very nature is incomprehensible. Hmm. And so, you know, there's this kind of like infinite chasm already between us and God because he's wholly other. He is, he's so transcendent and we're just, if we were left by ourselves, we're left utterly groping in the dark without even an awareness that we need knowledge of God in the first place. And so God really then condescends to us in the way he reveals himself to allow us to know him. And so, you know, that, that, that's, that's, you know, how does the incomprehensible become comprehensible? It's that God who is infinitely powerful transverses an infinite gap between us and him and only he can do that in order to make himself known and so you know you just see how god creates and then he's just so gracious to us right from the get-go and it's awesome and then of course there is the fall and the problem that the the fall has it in terms of darkening our minds and leading us into into depravity and then god again acts in such miraculous ways that he overcomes that problem which seems impossible by grace save us all, and all of that both of these things are towards having a true knowledge of him i think that knowledge of him is interesting so calvin really details this out by i think contrasting a religion with superstition so superstition yeah. is kind of creating your own fictitious thing of god whereas religion is the right worship of god and calvin's very clear that religion is implanted or a seed of religion is implanted into us in the in the section i might just read a couple uh pair like a yeah. short paragraph and a bit more here So he says at the uh, end of chapter four, in the last section, uh, he talks about this kind of seed that remains in us. Um, It is corrupted by our sin, but it is still there. And then he says, from this, my contention is brought out with greater certainty, that a sense of divinity is by nature engraven on human hearts. That idea, by the way, uh, stays stable in the Reformed tradition, even in the Westminster Confession, this idea of light of nature, sense of divinity, the engravenness in the human hearts. That's a kind of probably the standard way of reading Romans two for the reformers. Yep. There might be a ver- uh, divergence, but it's pretty much there. John one nine is also included. Um, so that there's a, a Christ illumines all people. There's a sense of which that's brought into reform thinking too. John Calvin conv- continues for necessity forces from the reprobate themselves, a confession of it, of the sense of divinity. In tranquil times, they're, they're, they wittily joke about God. Indeed, are fastidious and garrulous in belittle, belittling his power. If any occasion for despair presses upon them, it goads them to seek him and appels their perfunctory prayer. So fear of death then makes people realize that the God they're mocking is real because they always know it. From this, it is clear that they have not been utterly ignorant of God, but that they should have come forth sooner, but were held back by stubbornness. And then he continues, and this is kind of where I wanted to get to. This is chapter five, section one. The final goal, the ultimus goal of the blessed life, the beatific life, the beate vitae. Moreover, rest in the knowledge of God. Lest anyone then be excluded from access to happiness, he not God, not only sowed in men's minds that seed of religion of which we have spoken, but revealed himself and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. As a consequence, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. And then towards your point, 
about his incomprehensibility, Kelvin writes, Indeed, his essence is incomprehensible. Hence, his divineness far escapes all human perception. Here he's using sensus. He's going to talk about the different senses later in terms of the soul. But here he's talking about the, uh, the external bodily senses. Uh, then he goes on and on. But I think it's, it's useful to, to mention that because Calvin has a really strong view that God is drawing, him to, drawing us to him, not merely through what is made, but because we have an in, implanted sense of divinity that necessarily tells us that God exists. And then he says, by illustration, you see it when people joke about God. Yeah. Really, when fear happens, they, they know what's up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of like, uh, you know, no true atheist kind of argument. You know, all atheists, when they're in a foxhole, you know, pray <laughs> kind of, you know, mm -hmm. sort of Calvin's almost endorsing that in a weird way, saying, saying to the effect that, uh, you know, whatever superstitions we might have, um, th those are kind of proofs in a weird way that, that, that we know God and the proofs that he actually exists, right? It, he, he does the same with idolatry. He's going to say things like, listen, you know, we all, we all create idols. You know, he'll say later that uh, the heart is, is a factory of idols. You could almost call this then like the, the idolatrous argument for the existence of God, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, that because, because there's this human propensity, <laughs> you know, he gets a little funny here when he talks about primitive civilizations and he's, he gets a little bit kind of like, you know, the way he talks about uh, certain other civilizations that they're just above the animals, which is a bit worrying when he says that. But uh, you know, he's saying even in primitive civilizations, you know, everybody everywhere worships, everybody has some notion of God. And, that, and that's a proof that he exists and that implanted within all of humanity is the sensus divinitatis, the, the sense of the divine, that we all know him. Yeah. It's not just, and then the second part too is interesting in the same area of chapter five is it's not merely what you, the sense of divinitas, like this idea that we have a sense of God in us, but the things that are created actually also lead us to God. So he, it's interesting. So he cites, or I guess he refers to Hebrews 11.3, and he writes, the reason why the author of the letter to the Hebrews elegantly calls the universe the appearance of things invisible is that this skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in mm. which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Right. I mean, so God, God is incomprehensible is, is a fundamental attribute of God. And, uh, and so what he does in a weird way is he implants within us this seed of divinity, the census divinitatis, however you want to describe it. And, uh, and, it, and that kind of functions within humans as a kind of receptor, right? Because it's well and good for God to reveal himself to us. But if we don't have the means by which we can receive that revelation, we're still up the creek, and uh, and so God implants that in us in order for us then to be able to know Him, and so it's it's kind of like it's fundamental to our anthropology then, to who we actually are, how we're constituted, you know, really as body and soul to then actually know God. And I think what so where did He uh, implant that knowledge? I think it's really interesting this section too. Sorry, I, I got excited about the section. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, it's a great section. Um. He sowed it, Calvin says in 511, um, in our minds. And through the mind, we're able to contemplate God somehow. And so he says in chapter 5, uh, section 2, um, that the mind, and here he's using uh, animus, uh, the mind must rise to a somewhat higher level to look upon his glory, God's glory. And so I, I think Calvin's actually drawn on this older notion. So it's in Paul, you know, set your mind on things above, the upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus, 
Romans 12, the renewal of our mind. Gregory of Nyssa talks about ascending the mountain like Moses did to know God by the kind of soul or the mind. Um, the Mind's Ascent to God is a, is a famous book, I think, by Bonaventure. Yep. Um, Calvin's actually drawing on this, this whole same tradition, I think, by saying, look, your bodily senses can interface with reality to detect the signs of God. But really, it's that kind of internal principle, the mind, which is kind of parallel with the soul, which he's going to talk about is, is immortal and a sign of immortality and divinity as well. And it's really through that contemplation of God through the mind that we're able to kind of really discern his glory in creation, his glory in our, in ourselves, outward yeah. and inward. Um, yeah, it's, it's like what, you know, a lot of people now are kind of going back and describing as a kind of Christian Platonism, right? Um, mm. They look at somebody like Hans Borsma or, or even our own fellow Canadian, Craig Carter, uh, you know, talking about this whole kind of needing to recapture the kind of Christian Platonic tradition that Calvin is exemplar uh, of. And, um, you know, the, this idea of, of, of being lifted above ourselves, you know, he's, he's going to use the language in, in these, these opening chapters of the sun. You know, we kind mm. of become very uh, contented with ourselves, you know, as we just sort of look around with a, with a kind of like um, a horizontal, horizontal view of things. Um, but you know how it is, right? You look at a tree, you look at a house, whatever, and then you look up at the sun and you look back, and, whoa, like everything's kind of like distorted from it. What we really need to do is to get a clear vision is to, to look by the light of the sun so we can actually see things as they really are and uh, without a distorted view. And, and to do that, we have to have this true knowledge of God in order to know everything else. Hmm. No, I think that's really important. And it's interesting, you know, Calvin does have a, have a fascinating relationship with philosophy. So he will both quote it and have very strong things to say about it. He calls a, calls it a, calls one author a, thought a pigsty at one point. <laughs> and yet uh, he's also curious. very agreeable in other places with, you know, so he, you know, he'll disagree with Aristotle uh, that the soul is connected to the body, and I guess not immortal. I'm not sure if Aristotle actually held that, but that's what Kelvin says. Uh, and then in other places, he'll agree with certain philosophers when they discern things rightly. So maybe this is a question I can ask you. I know you've thought a little bit about it. Uh, how, how do we figure out those two sides of Kelvin where you have someone without the Holy Spirit who can discern truth sometimes, who knows that God exists, who can see it from nature, who can look inside because God created us, and have a sense of divinity through that immortal soul that we possess. That's uh, section five, five, chapter five, section five. How do, and then, and yet they then suppress this truth because of sin, unless something really serious happens. So how do we balance those two tensions in terms of the epistemology of Kelvin? Yeah, it's interesting the way you kind of phrase it right at the beginning there. Like they don't have the spirit in a sense um, that the spirit doesn't indwell them, that, uh, you know, they're not regenerated and those kinds of things. But nevertheless, he's going to say in another writing that this is this is actually still a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you read uh, his comments, and I'm I'm, I'm pulling this uh, from a from a blog post actually from Paul Helm, um, he he highlighted this uh, this comment that Calvin makes on Genesis 4:20, and it's probably worth reading to kind of work towards getting an answer at that. Right? He's going to say in uh, in this comment, "Let us then know that the sons of Cain." So thinking here about this, this kind of line that's going to come from Cain, and this is now in Genesis 4, where you get the very beginnings of civilization, and things are really bad. There's murder. Sorry, you can hear a helicopter behind me here. He says that's right. that, uh, <laughs> that's right, that's big brother, um, that the sons of Cain, though deprived of the spirit of regeneration, uh, were yet endued with gifts 
of no despicable kind. So he's going to say, look, these, these people that are going on, these artisans, uh, they're, they're crafting the earliest civilization. They don't have the spirit of regeneration, but nevertheless, they have gifts and they're not despicable. Uh, just as the experiences of all ages uh, teaches us how widely the rays of divine light have shone on unbelieving nations for the benefit of the present life. And we see at the present time, and here's, this is interesting, that the excellent gifts of the spirit are diffused through the whole human race. So even though these people don't have the spirit in terms of regeneration, they have him in that he is actually gifting them with everything that they're going to do to be able to build civilization. And Calvin's going to kind of give some particulars of what those gifts are. He says, moreover, liberal arts and sciences have descended to us from the heathen. Okay, so there's your Aristotles and Plato's and, and whomever else. He says, we are indeed compelled to acknowledge that we have received astronomy and the other parts of philosophy, medicine, and the order of civil government from them. And he's basically kind of like setting this kind of ordering, right? He's going to say the spirit gives it to them, and they in turn then give it to us for our benefit. Uh, and if we use it rightly with our regenerated minds, we can use those gifts of theirs to bring us back to a true knowledge of God. Mm. So it's really, it's really fascinating. You know, it's, it kind of reminds me of what Augustine says, I think, in uh, De Doctrina, where he talks about how, you know, we, like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, can plunder, plunder the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the gifts Egyptians. that the Egyptians had. And, and we could do the same. And I think Calvin is just sort of going along with that. Yeah, and once you say it, it's, it's kind of obvious. I mean, we all, we, if we go to the doctor, we trust the medical sciences to a pretty high degree that if you have a broken arm, they figured out how to heal arm. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't because they're necessarily a spirit-indwelled Christian that they could do that. And yet, that ability of the soul, that ability to recognize and discern natural laws, well, to discern right from all that kind of stuff, comes in some sense in the Holy Spirit's illuminating work to all people. Yeah, and that would be uh, John. I think one nine is I think the the typical reform verse, but there's other stuff too, of course. Yeah, Genesis four in yeah. particular. <laughs> I mean, it, make, it makes sense why Warfield can call Calvin the theologian of the spirit because here it's the spirit that's doing all that work, mm -hmm. and uh, and we can benefit from it. And that, that's why, and I'm not trying to like pick on people here, but you know, I think within our reform tradition, we've sort of been influenced, whether we realize it or not, by the Bardian tradition, and and then especially through the Antillian tradition. Of, of kind of, of pressing this kind of antithesis between believers and unbelievers. And a lot of people will make an appeal to Calvin. Um, and I think they're misunderstanding what he's saying. Like he, he's going to say that a lot of this stuff, he says in, in 514, you know, cre creation lights up all these bright lights or lamps to demonstrate the glory of the creator to us all in vain. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's going to, he's saying it's all in vain for ultimate reasons. Whatever this knowledge is that we have here, um, coming from pagans and, and, and whatever, um, that, that's not going to save us, right? That, that's the whole point of this opening chapter. He's going to set up two types of knowledge of God, right? Or, and really the whole institute is doing this. We call it the duplex cognitio uh, domini, uh, the twofold knowledge of God, um, where you know, we have knowledge of God as creator, which is what we're dealing with right now. And then he's going to jump into knowledge of God as redeemer. Knowledge of God as creator, that's true knowledge. That those are things that we need, but they're not sufficient to save us. Um, and, and I think some of that kind of more presuppositional tradition will say, well, it's to no avail, so it's no good. But that's not what Calvin's saying. Um, you know, no. this stuff is useful. It's useful for us as Christians to take from them, and it's useful for them in ordering society and having a flourishing life as best they can. 
But Calvin is going to say it's really to no avail if you don't really get to know God. That, that's why he hammers on Epicureanism over and over and over in the Institutes, because they're just looking at things from this, this worldly perspective, no divine order. And, uh, and you're just trying to live your best life in light of there being no God. And Calvin's like hammering on practical atheism in this section here, um, because he says like, it's not going to help ultimately. Yeah, I think a lot of it too has to do with the way in which w- what we're thinking Calvin's doing. Um, I think a lot of us think Calvin is doing this abstract total of all knowledge described type of work, but even the title of his book and the, his explicit purpose is it really meant to lead us to worship the true and living God. Yeah. I mean, the four, the four books, God, the creator, Christ, the redeemer, Holy spirit, I don't know, Lord and giver of life, whatever he calls it. And then the church yeah. it's, yeah. it's following after the creed yeah. and it's, it's a triune shaped book about right worship of God. So when he's talking about no avail, or when he's saying that the, the pagans don't get religion, he's not saying a body of beliefs. He means true worship. Mm-hmm. Because he actually makes a point in the first five chapters, I can't remember where exactly, and the second, that the distinguishing mark with Christians is that we have yep. piety. Yep. That's what, yep. so everyone has a seed of religion, but we have piety. Yeah, he says it right here. He says, by piety, okay. I mean the blend of reverence and love to God, which realizing his blessings inspires. Yeah. Right. And so we, we see, right. We see the gifts that God's constantly giving us by the spirit. The unbelievers don't see it, but they get the gifts too. And, uh, and, and we have piety in the sense that it's this blending together of our reverence, worship and our love because we see that he has blessed us. Yeah. And I think uh, that's so important to realize. And then when we come back to Calvin, you see these strong statements. It's not, he's not making some antithesis between, all knowledge of one group and all knowledge of another group. And pointedly, right. every, basically, I think every reformer, not, not Martin Luther, uh, wrote works on natural law and natural knowledge and the benefits of it and the way in which we can integrate and help and think through it. Like there's really no exception to that rule. Yeah. Although even um, within the, the early Lutheran tradition, you have natural law thinking. Um, Eric Hutchinson. Melanchthon. Yeah, Melanchthon and, and then Eric Hutchinson did a book uh, with uh, the Acton Institute uh, a year or so ago. Yeah, on I, a guy. I can't remember. I have it, but the author's name yeah. is confusing and I can't see it right now. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, he, he wrote it on a work uh, by Niels Hemmingsen. That's it. Uh, where, where Hemmingsen was a Danish Lutheran. And, uh, and that whole book, I read it uh, when it came out, that whole book goes through and just shows what we can know about God and the world from pagan authors. It's, it's awesome. And, uh, and Hemmingson was a phenomenal thinker that we're only just beginning to discover because of Hutchinson's work. Uh, which it, it's an excellent book. It, but it, it really is a summary of all the Reformed tradition. It, and it, it's no exaggeration for me to say that virtually every Reformer writes on natural law. Right. And how people can recognize truth and, in terms of nature and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you see it, right? Like the Westminster Confession, I think, as you even kind of alluded to, yeah. right in the beginning of its section on Scripture. Uh, in fact, actually, I think I pulled the quote here. Yeah, although the light of nature, <laughs> you know, it starts out, although the light of nature tells us a bunch of stuff, right? And, which is Calvin. Yeah. He's going to go right into this next section and say, but special revelation is, is, is indispensable to really the true knowledge of God that's going to save. Yeah, and, and I think that makes it so important because in the 20th century, a number of things happen. You mentioned Bart. He said his famous nine to um, Brunner. Who was uh, it yeah, again? Uh, Emil Brunner. Yeah, Brunner. And he was saying no to natural theology because he wanted to advance. He had a good reason. He wanted to make Christ central. But I think that line of thinking got pushed forward. In the 20th century, we 
really distinguished the idea of like kind of philosophy, natural knowledge from religion. And he kind of seems to have bought a little bit into that paradigm. And then especially in North America, that's true. Where those things get so separated that you even have in the late 20th century, uh, a guy named Cornelius Van Til, I think you mentioned him, who creates his antithesis, I think really wrongly. He wrongly reads the medieval tradition through Joseph Butler and incorrectly really, uh, reads John Kelvin to make the point, I think, or at least similar to this point, that there's a huge epistemological divide between believers and unbelievers that's not quite there. There yeah. is when it comes to religion and piety and what yeah. the Holy Spirit does to regenerate and bring us to God in terms of true knowledge and true worship. But uh, we're able to trust unbelievers when it comes to science in many ways, with the, with the certain truth, of course, medicine. Uh, if you're going to trust someone to take you on a boat ride across an ocean, you're going to trust they can navigate. There's yeah. just tons of natural knowledge as good and true. It's not really what Kelvin's getting at, although I think sometimes we accidentally think that's what he is getting at or tradition is getting at. So. The Davenant Institute that I'm, I'm involved with, um, they're publishing a book. Uh, if it's not out now, it's coming out very soon. By One of the editors of it is a Canadian, David Haynes, um, yeah. in Quebec, uh, who did his PhD at Laval in philosophy. And uh, it's called Without Excuse. And the, ed the, the collection in there of essays is a, is a reformed critique, although I think uh, there's a Lutheran in there, but um, a critique nonetheless of, of the Vantillian tradition within reformed theology. That'll be a really yeah. important book um, to, to look at. Yeah, One and it's I helpful. Love, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it's helpful to say too. Like Van Til was a genius. Uh, oh, absolutely. Many, like we're, I'm not here trying to say that he's. I'm saying on this particular point. Yeah. I think he said things too strongly, and he also did qualify things throughout. So we want to be careful. But it, the way that most people have received him, at least, is this epistemological divide. Even if he himself, in various places, kind of said a few things that we'd be more careful than, yeah. than we're giving him credit for here. So I want to make sure to say that. Yeah. But that said. Another thing downstream from that is, is once you do have the Holy Spirit, no matter what, uh, your mind is renewed and therefore yeah. creation takes on a different form. Yeah. It truly is. If you have piety, you can see a tree, the sky. You can. Calvin even talks about how when you pursue the liberal arts, you're, you're getting closer to this kind of sense of, of studying God and his work. Yeah, right um, in, cha in, in chapter five, right near the end of, I think, uh, section one there. He starts in this discussion of, of beauty, right? He says, wherever you look, there is no part of the world, however small, that does not show at least some glimmer of beauty. It mm. is impossible to gaze at the vast expanses of the universe, which I was doing with my kids last night. We were trying to find that comet. <laughs> we were using a, a telescope to do it. Uh, he says that, uh, you know, it is impossible to gaze at the vast expanses of the universe without being overwhelmed by such tremendous beauty. So the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, which I think you referenced, sensitively describes the visible world as an image of the invisible. Uh, the sub superb structure of the world acts as a sort of mirror in which we may see God, who would otherwise be invisible. And he's saying, he's like, look, there's beauty everywhere. And that beauty functions as a mirror to be able to show us God. And uh, everybody can see it, but with cr Christian eyes now, with the Holy Spirit actually regenerating us, right? We're, we're appropriating that rightly, um, which is so cool. Yeah, and unbelievers ought to see that. They often can see that, but imperfectly due to lack of piety. But we can see that with piety, with that true and reverent mixture of love for God in which we see things and don't just kind of grumble or make fun of God like Calvin's example. In, in fact, we worship him. Now, yeah, it's interesting because his, his, whole, his whole ending there of, of, section, of chapter 5 is, is really Paul. He's, he's, he's pulling off what Paul's saying in Romans 1.18 and following. It's the idea is that, like, listen, 
We all have this knowledge. We actually have the true knowledge and it renders us without any excuse before the judgment seat of God. But it's true knowledge nevertheless, right? If it wasn't true knowledge that the unbeliever had, then they wouldn't actually be responsible for it. So that the unbeliever actually really can see these things and do something with them. It's just that at the ultimate level, it's of no avail. That's a helpful point too. I mean, how can you be culpable if you don't truly know? And Calvin then answers that question by saying, well, they, they do know. The problem is not the problem necessarily of insufficient knowledge, but of a corrupted will yep. that fights against that knowledge. Um, so how can we summarize things? How can we kind of bring this to an ending? So, so what is the twofold knowledge of God? How do we sum- summarize that? Well, you have, you know, his, his lead in is really you have to know yourself and to know God. It's this kind of mixture that you can't almost separate them. To know, to, as you start looking at yourself, you got to look up to God. And as you look up to God, you gotta, you'll find out more things about yourself. So he's going to say primary and all that is really going to be knowledge of God. And he's saying to get at that, 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 that knowledge of God, we do so first by way of knowing him as creator and then knowing him as redeemer. And that, that what we're, we'll be discussing, I, I take it in the next, uh, in the next talk. And so, you know, and, and that's the whole point of human existence is really to know God, the incomprehensible one who's made himself comprehensible and then saved us um, so that we could know him. You know, John Webster, I think it was, um, kind of puts it this way. He says that, uh, you know, we need to know God in order to fear God and we fear God in order to love him. And, uh, and those kind of three steps are what Calvin, I think, is, is really getting at. What I like to hear, and maybe this is worth even closing on, there's so much more to say. Uh, I'll make an, uh, a recommendation. Uh, Edward Dowie's book, uh, Knowledge of God in, in Calvin or something like that, is, if you want to dive deep, is the one to go with. Um, but I like, I like how Calvin, you know, we, we kind of think of Calvin as this kind of very rigid and, you know, cold sort of guy. Yet you get all this language all throughout of the heart and of love. And here I wanted to kind of just mention about how he talks about how, you know, God, knowing God, knowing him in control, providentially of everything is actually a source of comfort for us, right? Uh, He says there in chapter two, I think it's in uh, section two, he says, uh, the man who knows God like this, seeing how he's in control of everything, confides in him as his guardian and protection and throws himself completely on his faithfulness, realizing that he is the source of all blessing. He has a problem or need. He immediately turns to God for protection and help. Sure that he is good and kind, he can rest confidently in him and does no doubt that in this uh, great goodness an answer will be found for every need. And so to have knowledge of God, it's actually going to be of immense comfort to us as we go through this sort of like uh, the struggles and trials of life. And he calls knowing God that sort of end of the happy life. He's yeah. not really looking forward to this kind of you know, stalwart, serious, boring thing, but he, he knows the reality of life. And he's also living in a time where uh, death was ubiquitous, war, yep. famine. We live in a time where it's a little bit easier to be more relaxed about these things because yeah. we're talking over the internet in different countries. Uh, we have freedom to, for food. We're not, we're not worried about being invaded, dying. So I think there, there's a real sense in which he, uh, there, there's reasons why he might be a little bit more stern than we are. Yeah. Um, I like the way to end that, how you ended that. I think that's helpful. It's, it's about comfort. And I think when you know God and you know his love for us in Christ Jesus, it's easier to trust in his providence. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you haven't had that relationship with Jesus, the providence can be quite fearful. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, this is this is you know Aristotle talks about eudaimonia or, or happiness mm -hmm. or true human flourishing. This is true eudaimonia right here. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what he's getting at. So, well, thanks. For this. So, uh, this is chapters one, two, three, four, and five of book one. Next week we do chapters six, seven, and eight. Uh, roughly, they're uh, if you do five pages a day, you can get through it. Sometimes they're a bit longer um, than that, but that's roughly the kind of reading plan. So. We'll look forward to seeing everyone next week. And thank you so much, Ian, for this talk. And uh, have a good day. Fun as always. Reading Theology is about opening your mind and heart to know and enjoy God and His creation. It's something you can pursue every day. For more resources, check out ca.thegospelcoalition.org. Subscribe to Into Theology on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And join us next time as we read great works of theology together.